He went then as Father General. He was in the Curia in Rome. And you mentioned at the beginning there that the task of implementing Vatican II in terms of a Jesuit response was really a bit of a poison chalice because those were the early days and there was a lot of controversy for many people, let's say conservatives or whatever, they thought this was a betrayal of everything that the Catholic Church was. Tell me a bit about that period in his life and how he responded. He participated in the final period of Vatican II when he was elected in May and it went on again in 1965. He was able to listen to what the bishops of the world were saying and he took to heart the decisions that they made and he bought into Vatican II as few other people have done, at least not people in that position. And so when he read or participated maybe in writing the church in the modern world, he was coming at it from that vantage point of seeing a world that could be shattered and thousands and thousands of people dying, etc. So he has been thought to be slightly innocent or naive. He would pick up this kind of idea, Vatican II, we must implement it as fully as we can, without being over aware of the reactions of the Vatican itself who would be moving much more slowly because they had to consider the whole world. And so from early on then, there were disagreements about the implementation of the decrees of Vatican II. And we experienced that in Ireland where one Archbishop of Dublin would come back and say, my dear people, you may have been a bit worried, but you needn't, there's nothing going to happen. So you were up against that right across the world. There were those bishops who had been, as it were, converted in Vatican II, but others, that's the way things go, were less taken and less sure and less confident that this opening out to the world, opening out to the lay members of the church um, was the way to go. So in terms of an impact on the Jesuits, how did that impact and how did his leadership, what would characterise it? What did he do with the Jesuits? Because we're going to hear later on it got him into a lot of trouble eventually. Mm. Well, the decision at the end of Vatican II was that they would set up a synod, uh, in other words, a rolling support for the Pope in his decision-making. The bishops would come together and share on whatever particular item, like world poverty or injustice anywhere in the world, whatever, and that they would advise him. So these synods got underway, and there was a famous or infamous synod in 1971 when the bishops, there would have been up to 300 of them, I think, came out with a document called Justice in the World. And they spoke at length about that. And then they added in a section on justice in the church. And that was not good. (laughs) That didn't go down well. In fact, it got onto the shelves and there it stayed. And it is not talked about even yet. But he would have gone on implementing its energy, if you like, and doing what he could. And so he saw that in the church, the big difficulty was that faith was being preached and wrote, written about and whatnot, but justice was a slow second. And that from the decree of the Synod in 1971, which was following on Vatican II, the two things must go together. So there's no point in preaching a good homily to people who are dying of starvation. 
you've got to work for justice and even be willing to suffer for justice. And so faith and justice are like two legs by which one walks forward. Um, neither on their own will do. I mean, justice without faith can be a very bloody affair. The Americans would have said, well, this is justice, what we're doing in dropping a bomb on a more or less innocent city. So trying to get those two things together and get people to agree on them was one of his great achievements. In 1974-75, he gathered the Jesuits of the world, representatives of them, and they hammered out the, a decree on the indissoluble link between justice and faith. And that, of course, led to all kinds of trouble because there were areas in which the church would be conniving with the local powers in order to have a quiet life or that Catholicism would be allowed to carry on its unhindered way, but it would be purely private affair. Once you got involved in the issue of justice, say, in El Salvador, you could see what was going to come next. And in 1989, the decree on faith and justice was lived out by this small group of six with two women who were working with them in the house, and they were all murdered, the Salvador martyrs. In the period then between 1974 and around about 2015, which was the latest figures I had, some 50 Jesuits had died violently supporting their people in the cause of justice. And then difficulties arose about liberation theology. So if people started out in liberation theology, what kind of a model were they going to use? Should they involve themselves in a Marxist analysis whereby one class has to make war on the other and bring everyone down to a common base? Or would they propose non-violent resistance? Or would they simply say, well, whatever you do in your efforts to achieve justice and freedom and equality, etc., and the world's goods, we'll support you, do you know? You can see immediately where the problems arose and so bishops who found themselves at the far end of all this, they began to complain to Rome, to Paul VI, who was then the Pope, and then Pope John Paul II in 1979 until 2005. And so those complaints were heard and they created great difficulty. And people would think, and I would think myself, that Pedro needed to spend a lot more time working with the people in Rome to reach an agreement about what should be done and maybe spend less time going around encouraging our people to keep on working for faith and justice. You were one of those people. I mean, it, it did work. I, I remember seeing a graph and the graphs under Pedro Rupi's leadership of Jesuits who died working in the field, yes. you know, really spiked mm. highly. You have Michael O'Sullivan went to Chile and had a mm. death attempt on him. And you went to Rwanda and you had an encounter. Do you want to tell us that story with well, Father Arupi? Um, yes. Just one thing to add to the fact that the 50 or more died violently. Another big change that came in the Jesuits was that a large number, about a third of the people left uh, not particularly because they were members of the Jesuits, but because religious life for the first time was seen as an option rather than a necessary way to serve God in the best possible fashion. 
That was a huge thing and it led to a draining of vocations within the Jesuits and right across the world and we see the result of that now where as somebody said I saw a rare thing the other day it was a nun and so forth. Do you know that we're becoming an endangered species in this part of the world? Anyway, coming back to me and Pedro on this particular thing, in 1981, I had finished seven years working in Milltown Park, large community, institute of philosophy and theology, that kind of thing. So um, the provincial said, you're tired, you should take a break and let me know where you'd like to go in order to refresh your energies. So I chose the Philippines. That was grand for a few months of planning that kind of thing. And then he came back and he said, you're going to the Philippines? And I said, yes. And he said, well, uh, will you be visiting any refugees there? Which I thought was a strange question. I said, oh, yes, you know, not having a clue. And he said, you know, Father General is starting this thing called the Jesuit Refugee Service. And I said, well, that's marvelous without any notion of getting involved. And so the provincials said, well, you know, you, you've got to look after yourself, you're tired, but if you'd like to take up an offer which has just come in, I would be very grateful. So the request had come from the Archbishop of Mogadishu in Somalia for a Jesuit, well, for somebody to be sent to Somalia, which was a country out of which... All religious had been banned except the sisters. They were allowed to stay. Um, this was by a communist government. They were allowed to stay because they were doing useful social work, running leprosaria, running schools, this clinics, this, that and the other. They got a difficulty then that because there were hardly any priests left, they couldn't stay. And new congregations that would have come in from India to help out said they wouldn't come unless, unless priests were able to come in as well. Was this, this for the sacraments then? For the sacraments, for mass, for spiritual direction, for mm -hmm. support, all that kind of thing. And also the idea of working together, yeah. not men doing it all and women just doing the serving or cleaning the church and that kind of thing, but working in this together with different skills, etc. So he said... Uh, We'd like to see whether, this was the Archbishop of Mogadishu, we'd like to see whether if a priest came, he would be allowed to stay, or maybe he'd be imprisoned, or maybe he'd be um, sent back at the airport, or maybe he'd be put to death. <laughs> and the provincial went on and said... <laughs> Now, I know you're thinking of going to the Philippines, but um, it would be terrific if you could think of Somalia. Well, I didn't know where it was, and I have no feel for high temperatures. I just melt away, and this was on the equator. <laughs> anyway, he said, I'd like you to discern, you know, before God, what you think is best to do, and you can get advice and whatnot. But I knew I happened to be a in the world of the ones on the Enneagram, so I'm a perfectionist. But anyway, the thing was appealing to me at a deeper level. Were you afraid about dying, that they might decide to execute you? Well, I was a little bit younger then, and death wasn't so, <laughs> so um, imminent, or didn't seem so imminent. And I did have the awareness that other people were dying for justice, and, you know, why should it be next door? Why shouldn't it be me? But anyway, I, I decided those things were desolations, and I shouldn't follow them, and I should follow the sense of, 
oh, authenticity and rightness and responding to a need that nobody else is going to meet and so forth. So I got to Rome and had a week to wait for a plane for Mogadishu. It isn't exactly a tourist centre, so there's not very many planes going there even then. And at that time, when I was waiting, I got news that my sister-in-law had taken her own life. And could I come back as soon as possible to Dublin, which I did, and looked after the funeral and stayed with the family for a bit, and then had to think it all out again. Should I stay and be with uh, the small number of Grogan's that were around? And was I up to it myself because of shock and whatnot? Anyway, I decided I'd go. So I got back to Rome and Cecil McGarry, um, who was the right-hand man of Pedro Rupe, knew what had happened for me and asked me, would it help me if I met with Pedro before I went? So I said, that'd be terrific. So I was brought into the infirmary where he was lying on a couch. Now, Pedro was five foot one at the best of times, but he was shrunken even more and he had had a thrombosis and so he wasn't able to speak and he listened to what Cecil told him in Spanish about the situation in Mogadishu and that this would be forwarding the JRS in eastern Africa <laughs> my presence Moria <laughs> anyway he pulled himself up on one elbow and he stuck out a trembling arm and he said one word he said go (laughs) and I've never forgotten that it's as alive for me today as it was then and it's seen me through a lot of pain and difficulty (laughs) when you're told just go go. and while I did get a bit of a temptation during the flight over the desert on the way through Ethiopia and on the way to um, Somalia I found myself praying dear Jesus if it be your holy will, may the wings <laughs> may the wings fall off this plane and we'll come plummeting down and I'll die honourably <laughs> because I don't know what's going to happen to me. There were only four Franciscans in the whole country. They were the only ones who were left. The bishop who was murdered on the steps of the cathedral five years later. That's the kind of place it was. So off I went anyway. That was that last time I saw him and the last instruction that he gave to me. But I suppose it is good to remember that everything that Pedro did from 1965 on in the reform and the rejuvenation of the Jesuits has had its effect on me and on the church and on a lot of Jesuits who remained. And also then more recently on Pope Francis, the Jesuits he joined were the Jesuits that had been rekindled, if you like, or founded for the second time, as some people think by Pedro Arupe. So the effect of all of that on the church and on the world at large is just way beyond measuring.